Give the gift of liberty this holiday season by becoming a Cato sponsor on behalf of a friend or loved one. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor. And if you support our work with $1,000 or more, I'll give you or your designee a shout out on the podcast. Help us advance the values of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace by becoming a Cato podcast sponsor. That website again is cato.org slash podcast sponsor. And thank you. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, December 5th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. How independent is the Fed? How do markets evaluate the interactions between the Fed and Congress? Mark Spindle is co-author of The Myth of Independence, How Congress Governs the Federal Reserve. We spoke at the Cato Institute's Monetary Conference last month. As we look back, not just over the last few years, last decade, but you know, we've gone back to those organizing documents from a century ago. And I think tried to, Sarah and I tried to understand exactly where the interdependence, and that's a word that we've really tried to highlight to our readers and to ourselves, that the politicians on Capitol Hill and lately more obviously in the White House have uh, tried to influence and have been influenced by actions of their Federal Reserve. All right. So let's try to understand the direction of the influence as it exists today, as you understand it. Uh, one of those is very clearly uh, that members of Congress and, of, as you noted, this president in particular have uh, pointed out they don't like what the Federal Reserve is doing. Uh, in many ways, they're trying to uh, adjust and this is just public comments. This isn't necessarily how how they exert uh, most of their influence, but uh, they're trying to say the Federal Reserve is doing a bad job. They need to hike. They need to lower, usually lower uh, rates. And uh, what influence does that actually exert, as far as you can tell, on how the Fed conducts business? So good question. And I think that political influence or political pressure for easier money is a tried and tested uh, sort of pressure by politicians, as you say, either openly or more discreetly. Um, I think the way that political pressure has manifested itself just lately can also happen in terms of how markets, how investors, how individuals believe their elected officials. So if a particular president is uh, outspoken and often asking his central bank, his chair of the Fed, his hand-selected uh, chair of the Fed to lower rates at a time where they're raising them. Um, I think that can call into question the efficacy or the, uh, uh, the purpose of the Fed's actions. I could also see it working in reverse where uh, a central bank or a central bank chair feels that pressure, say, to uh, lower interest rates and feels that to express some independence, that myth that you you introduced that we that we wrote about, he feels he's got to do something different to show that he's independence. So that kind of conflict, I think, was fairly apparent in the president and Jay Powell's interactions at the end of last year. And I think the market felt that interaction. All right. So how does the market treat uh, the interactions between the Fed and politicians? And what influence then does that in your view, exert over 
either political machinations or the actual functioning of the Fed? So a lot and sometimes not so much. Uh, you know, I think to the extent that markets believed that interest rates were moving uh, too high too quickly at the at the end of last year, they tended to adopt the president's view. Um, there's a feedback mechanism. Certainly, uh, central bankers, Fed chairs, uh, earlier than 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 Chair Powell, Bernanke, Yellen have spoken about the way that the financial markets um, influence uh, expectations for growth, uh, the ability of firms to raise capital, both equity capital uh, and uh, and debt, um, and a strong influence we've seen certainly in in the last uh, the last financial crisis, the last recession. Um, the extent to which financial markets, financial intermediaries, um, played a big part in that downturn. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't your ordinary recession. It was certainly a, a financial market induced uh, induced recession. Did you look at the financial crisis in in your book and what uh, how uh, politicians in the Fed and specifically Bernanke and uh, Hank Paulson and people like that were communicating with each other and what impacts that had? So we did, and I think uh, I think the genesis of the project. Uh, that became the book, The Myth of Independence, that Sarah and I um, really spent almost a decade drafting and writing, began September 29th, uh, gosh, 2.10 in the afternoon on 2008. Um, that's a date that should ring uh, pretty loudly. It was the failure of the first TARP vote in the House. Um, I'm an investment manager running an investment management business here in Washington. Uh, Sarah Binder is my neighbor and friend and an expert uh, on Congress, a political scientist at uh, George Washington University. And I just reached out to her and said, what the heck happens now? Um, and the conclusion that we came to in 2008 um, was they are going to open the act. Uh, what the heck does that mean? Uh, they, Congress, the House and the Senate, are going to open the Federal Reserve Act and begin to tinker uh, with um, the uh, the law that governs the Federal Reserve, clip its wings a little bit, give it more authority. And we weren't sure at that point how many times that had happened uh, in the previous century, but in looking at uh, financial crises, at recessions, ordinary run-of-the-mill recessions and the more spectacular failures such as the Great Depression uh, and the, the, the global financial crisis. It turns out that Congress has revised and reopened the act nearly a dozen and a half times. Um, and what we began to realize what there was a classic cycle of crisis, uh, of a attempt by politicians to find someone or some institution to blame that almost always that institution was the Federal Reserve. And that question that you asked up top, which is how does this interaction move in both ways, they would simultaneously blame the Federal Reserve for the economic downturn, the crisis, and yet they would give it more power. And that kind of conundrum or that anomaly to us was really worth exploring. That sounds like a lot of uh, the work of uh, various economists who sort of puzzled over the fact that uh, the public may have a very low opinion of Congress or may have a very low opinion of the federal government in general. And yet, when trouble strikes, they clamor to have uh, the federal government, quote unquote, do something and give them more authority. So 
I think the history of the Federal Reserve has been well told and well researched by economists and economic historians. Um, where I think we tried to shed some new light was, first of all, to introduce some strong political science and political history and some practitioner perspective. Our collaboration, a sort of renowned political scientist and academic, my work as an investment manager who focuses on political and policy influences on financial markets was unique in this field. Um, I think the politics and the political science was really driven by um, a well-known view that politicians really are single-minded seekers of re-election. Um, that's a David Mayhew, sort of political scientist at Yale, sort of famous view about what motivates members of Congress and politicians in general. Well, at the uh, very least, that motivation overrides whatever else is going on. <laughs> Absolutely. In the triage of political priorities, getting reelected as a way to further whatever social policy or policies in particular. Yes. Um, so it's a motivating feature. Um, and you know, why did it take 100 years to really resolve the panic of 1907, uh, the financial crisis that ushered in uh, what was at the time a very decentralized, weird public-private partnership between district banks distributed around the country, a very weak board of governors? What were the compromises between Washington and Wall Street 100 years ago? Why do private entities, private banks, private sector institutions have such a strong role um, in our monetary policy. Even today, even though the responsibilities of those district banks have been increasingly centralized at a board of governors, a much more powerful board of governors in Washington. And I think that arc over 100 years just goes back to the myth of independence and the reality of interdependence. We do not want 435 House members, uh, 535 uh, sitting uh, members of Congress, including the Senate, making monetary policy. Some people do. Some pretty prominent people do right now. Some people might. Um, but I think our view is that collectively, um, there was a bit of advice, uh, just to interrupt myself, there was a bit of advice that Ben Bernanke gave then incoming chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. Uh, Kate Davidson, now a reporter at the Wall Street Journal, asked him what would he, you know, what would he tell Janet Yellen about the position, and he said, first thing, just remember, Congress is our boss." Um, and I think, you know, partially what the myth um, was that it wasn't always and isn't always presidential pressure, um, and we lived through a period up until President Trump where that presidential pressure was largely in the background, if existent at all, this idea of hands off the Fed. Um, but of course, we had a great financial crisis. Um, we had to unleash and open a whole series of unconventional monetary policies, policies that questioned uh, the efficacy of interest rates that expanded the balance sheet massively and continues to be quite large relative to history and relative to GDP. And I think members of Congress uh, certainly have asked uh, and present the Federal Reserve with a number of continuing questions even today. And I think the sort of purpose of thinking about communication, um, 
really sort of uncovers the extent to which accountability and transparency, communication itself is a piece of the policy. Okay, so let's accept your premise. Uh, you know, you have this book, The Myth of Independence, talking about the, the Federal Reserve. Let's assume that all of that is true. If if that's the case, uh, and we understand that, that you know, political science and psychology and economics has a lot to, to bring to bear on how the, the Fed and Congress do their job with respect to uh, monetary policy, what should change with respect to either the Fed's mandate or the degree to which uh, Congress uh, is practically able to influence the decisions of the Federal Reserve? So that's a great question. And I think trying to determine what should be the case is uh, an important part of our work. Um, I think one thing that we try to highlight is that often the all-knowing, omniscious central bank uh, and central bank uh, central bankers is um, really not exactly what's going on. Um, during the crisis, sort of in the wake of the crisis, Bernanke was was interviewed a number of times, and he kept coming back to this idea that um, monetary policy is ninety eight percent communication and two percent action. Um, that talking about the policy, as I said, can often be the policy itself. And Fed watchers, market participants want to give the Fed a lot of credit for this increase in transparency. Um, we quote uh, the former governor of the Bank of England, Montague Norman, who famously said, never explain and never excuse. Um, this is early uh, sort of depression era central banking. Um, and the idea was not to say anything and to sort of keep the public um, and the public's uh, elected officials in the dark. Um, there's been a radical shift in uh, transparency and in accountability. And a lot of that transparency has been motivated by members of Congress. Hasn't a lot of it been motivated by just the notion uh, of you know developments in economics that uh, where expectations of the public, the expectations of markets play such a massive role? And uh, to the extent the Fed can be transparent about its actions, those expectations can be, if if not altered, at least tempered somewhat, and uh, markets know how to plan. Yes. I, I think the economic rationale uh, for increasing transparency has been fairly well documented for the reasons you've said. Um, Bernanke, uh, Mike Woodford, uh, sort of many leading academics and policymakers have talked about how giving markets uh, and giving economic agents more information um, that helps guide those expectations. Again, a long way from never explain, never excuse. That being said, um, the Fed also came in the mid-70s off a horrible uh, performance, uh, high inflation, high unemployment, uh, sort of a stagnant economy. And there were many battles um, in Congress between uh, leading members of the House Financial Services Committee, um, Fed chairs. One that we discuss uh, at length in the paper at Cato today is a battle between Wright Patman, uh, then uh, chair of the House Financial Services Committee, and Arthur Burns, um, who was Nixon's hand-selected uh, Fed chair and really ushered in a lot of this notion of uh, sort of political capture. He was pressured heavily uh, by Nixon to keep interest rates low. Um, and there are a series of letters uh, in the mid-70s that go back and forth between Patman and Burns. And Patman is asking for verbatim transcripts 
um, from these meetings. He wants to understand um, increased transparency and heightened accountability of the Fed, which was clearly failing um, on both uh, both. Um, an unemployment and inflation measure, which had yet to be introduced. The Humphrey-Hawkins Act was in 1978. Three months, these letters go back and forth. And finally, uh, Byrne says, in consultation with the committee, we're not going to give you anything. (laughs) Um, And if you look at a Federal Reserve Reform Act in 1977, and uh, really the mother of legislation, the Humphrey-Hawkins Act of 1978, it was all congressional pressure to get more information, uh, to force the Fed chair to appear semi-annually, um, appearances that Jay Powell is going through even today as you and I speak. Um, you know, you can fast forward uh, another mini generation to the 1990s, fights between Henry Gonzalez sitting in that same seat um, and Alan Greenspan. Um, you know, and again, a lot of pressure to release these mandates Gonzalez threatens Greenspan. He says, if you don't give these to me, I'm going to put legislation in place. So in the 70s, we had actual legislation. In the 90s, there was just the mere threat of Congress acting. Turns out that if you go back to those Patman Burns letters, Burns had told his boss, Patman, that those transcripts didn't exist. He was wrong. There were tapes. The White House wasn't the only institution that was running tapes in the mid-70s, and all of those uh, those meetings uh, were recorded. Um, and ultimately, that's what compelled Greenspan uh, to release, albeit with a longer lag than 60 days, which is what Gonzalez had asked for. So part of what we've tried to do in the book and in the paper that, uh, that Cato has invited today that Sarah and I prepared was just, yes... All of those economic explanations are there. And as you asked and rightly point out, lots of good reasons to think about expectations. But there was a lot of political pressure that was happening. And even in the wake of the crisis, again, a cycle of crisis um, and and legislative threats and action, um, Dodd-Frank opened the act. Part of what was in uh, ultimately uh, the legislation was more authority on financial supervision and regulation, um, establishing a new vice chair at the Board of Governors, forcing that vice chair to appear in Congress semi-annually. Some wing clipping. A history of the Fed goes back to, and a history of central banking really goes back to a lender of last resort facility, a facility that was used extensively in the wake of the most recent financial crisis. 13-3, exigent circumstances. Congress clipped the ability of the Fed to make the kind of loans to financial institutions that it made in the wake of of the crisis without getting permission from the sitting Secretary of the Treasury. This comes back again to a point, Caleb, that you raised, which is at times of crisis, particularly disinflationary uh, moments where the Fed is up against its lower bound on interest rates, all sorts of issues will reveal the extent to which monetary and fiscal policy Um, monetary politics will force a kind of integrated um, relationship between the bosses on Capitol Hill, uh, the executive branch, particularly uh, the president, obviously, and the Treasury Secretary, and the Federal Reserve. And we flag this. There's certainly uh, a strong push to think more about fiscal policy. Um, Chair Powell just said yesterday in Congress, uh, foreshadowing that with high debt Uh, and deficit levels, it will be harder, particularly near the monetary lower bound uh, for fiscal agents to to play their part. 
um, that dance between monetary and fiscal levers or that relationship between monetary and fiscal levers, I think really speaks to the kind of interdependence that Sarah and I have, have written so much about. Mark Spindle is co-author of The Myth of Independence, How Congress Governs the Federal Reserve. We spoke at the Cato Institute's Monetary Conference last month. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 